You're listening to the She is Fierce radio show. She is Fierce connects women to each other and their dreams. You'll meet incredible women who all have one thing in common. They took a leap. They've got passion. They're on a mission. They're doing exciting and rewarding things. And they want to help you take your big leap. And now your host, She is Fierce founder, Kelly Youngs. Welcome to the She is Fierce show presented by Bozard Ford Lincoln. I'm Kelly Youngs, the founder of She is Fierce. Today, I am so delighted to have Jay Newton Small on the show. Jay is an author, a journalist, a socially minded entrepreneur who is making a difference in the world one story at a time as a Washington correspondent for Time Magazine and a journalist with Bloomberg News and as the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And Jay is also telling different kinds of stories as the co-founder and CEO of Memory Well. Memory Well works with the families of loved ones with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other illnesses that require nursing staff or caregivers. And Jay and her team have created a system to help write the stories of that person's life to make their personhood more real in the eyes of those helping to care for them. Jay, welcome. I am so happy to have you as a guest. Thank you for joining me. Kelly, I'm excited to be on. Thanks. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to, I have all kinds of questions for you, but I want to ask if you would be kind enough to share just a little bit of your background to help our listeners get to know you. Sure. Um, So I've been a national correspondent for about 15 years in Washington, D.C. My first Four years, I was uh, with Bloomberg News covering the White House and the Kerry campaign, Congress and politics. And then in 2007, Time hired me to cover the Democratic side of the 2008 campaign. So I covered Obama and Hillary and John Edwards and all of that. Um, I've been 10 years with Time. Uh, I actually left Time staff in November after covering the Hillary campaign um, for them uh, to work full time on Memory Well. So, um, but really only something as like memory well could have taken me away from journalism and from time because I, I really did love being a journalist and it was my dream job. I, time was amazing. I spent, you know, um, I, I covered not only Washington politics, but um, I was in the Middle East and uh, covered Europe for a while. Um, you know, was on assignment uh, to do the Paris attacks, uh, both for the November 2015 attacks and Charlie Hebdo. Um, was in subbed in for our London bureau chief for a stint. So it's been a really great um, career. And I really loved time and loved pol- politics and loved journalism. But um, memory well became a real passion and a real calling for me. And, um, and so come November, I decided to take the terrifying leap to uh, become an entrepreneur and to start a company. Yeah, so listen, I want to talk more about Memory Well, but before we jump into that, can I just share that I came across you and your fantastic book after listening to a talk that you gave at the Generation W conference, I think last year, if not the year before, and I was so struck by your talk and some of the insights that you shared about in your book, Um, and the book is Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And you talk a lot about the experiences that women are going through across the country. And what I loved was that you were kind of looking at it from a 
basic journalist point of view. You were looking at hard numbers and statistics and studies and not making assertions and saying women are this and men are this. You were really looking at it on a baseline level. And you look specifically at percentages of women in leadership within different industries, the impact that women can have. Can you share a little bit about what kind of came out of your research? Sure. So um, Broad Influence grew out of a story I wrote for Time uh, in 2013 about the women of the Senate coming together during the government shutdown to restart the negotiations to reopen the government when none of the men would talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a lot of interest in writing a book out of that episode. But what interested me, well, first of all, all the women of the Senate were writing their own books and they didn't need one from me. But um, secondly, what interested me most about that episode was that it was the first time the Senate had reached 20% women. Um, so 20 of the 100 senators were women. And, you know, having covered politics at that point for about a dozen years on and off, you really could feel the sort of tangible difference the women made in the Senate that session. So they, they chaired or ranked on 11 of the 20 committees. They were incredibly powerful. And just the whole tone of the session was very, very different than any that I'd seen before. And it turns out that there is a big body of research that shows that um, – when women reach somewhere between 20 and 30% in any uh, body, whether it's a legislature like, the set, legislature like the Senate or a corporate board, a Navy ship or an appellate court, they really begin to change the culture of that institution, they begin to change the way things are done. Um, it's a tipping point. And so um, my book actually gathers all the places where women have reached critical mass, as it's called, um, so, and, and, uh, and, and the differences they've made. Um, And then it looks at all the areas where we're really far away from it and why it's important to get there. And so in the case of the women of the Senate, that particular chapter, um, that that two-year session, the women ended up producing 75% of the legislation that was passed into law that session. So it was really amazing the impact that they had. Yeah, I mean, I was so struck when you were talking about this on stage. And I have to say that that story that kind of kicked off your whole book what really struck me, and I, even though I run an organization called She is Fierce, I am not one of those people who is constantly, you know, jumping on every bandwagon about um, women and feminism, even though it's such an integral part of what we do. And that story just struck me so much. And I was talking about it for months afterwards. And so when I heard that that was the inspiration for your book, I was excited. And I, I love some of the insights that came out of it about, you know, once you kind of reach that um, 20%, you start to see things work a little bit differently. And it's just a little bit, um, you know, we talk a lot about diversity, but it's actually seeing it in practice. Yeah. And just seeing, um, the, you know, the tipping point, it's really striking. And I think that, um, there's like a lot of research that you know, it was done at Harvard, starting with Rosemary Cantor and others that looks at what happens. You know, there's sort of one woman is a token, two women are a pair, and they end up working against each other um, oftentimes. But when you get to three or more, things begin to normalize. And it really is, and this can be seen and studied in all kinds of cases of diversity, whether it's racial, um, sexual sort of representations, um, you know, gay, lesbian, straight, uh, women, you know, all different kinds of things. But in any minority, when you get to that tipping point, it is really just so striking how different things become and everything just kind of normalizes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's such a like kind of strange chemistry, the way that that works, but it is really striking that it works in almost every profession across the board. There's evidence of this and research that looks at it. So it's really a fascinating kind of phenomenon. 
Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I also took away from your book was the, that that is the true. And yet at the same time we see in businesses that their bottom line tends to benefit when they get to that 20% mark. And yet female CEOs don't seem to have any financial difference. And it's really when you're looking at one individual, like you were saying, that doesn't necessarily change the, the result. Yeah, I mean, you do need critical actors. And I think that's why somewhere between 20 and 30% is always the number. Because if you have um, a lot of critical actors, like in the Senate, you had, you know, chairs and ranking members um, who were on, uh, you know, powerful people on committees who are controlling committees. Um, you only needed 20% of, of the Senate. But if you just have rank and file, you need more, you need 30% or more. But when you do get that sort of executive presence, like a CEO, you don't need as many sort of rank and file. And that's why it's so important to get to that, that, that one really powerful person. For example, Nancy Pelosi, when she was Speaker of the House and when she was minority leader, she still is minority leader in the House, she almost single-handedly has increased female participation in the Democratic caucus from 19% to 37%. So um, she's really helped grow the women's presence there by, by focusing on that and, and, and spending resources on it and, and empowering women in, in, this, in the House. And so, um, you know, a token isn't great. It's never great. But if you can get somebody like a CEO, like a president, for example, you, that can also really supercharge things. Mm. Now, you know, She's Fierce is all about sharing women's stories and, and that diversity of stories. But I want to ask you, because you have so many great stories in your book of individual women's impacts and the experiences that they've gone through. Can you talk a little bit about one that really stood out for you? Um, I guess, uh, I guess just, I don't think, I actually don't think this story was in the book, but it's it's one that kind of stuck with me just as it struck me how much times have changed. And that's, um, I was talking to Elizabeth Dole, who ran for president in 2000 and was the senator from North Carolina, was uh, married to Bob Dole, who also ran, you know, for president in 1996. Mm-hmm. And, um, she's a former secretary of transportation and former secretary of, uh, um, there's two, she did two departments. I can't remember what the other one was, but um, anyway, so she um, talked about how when she wanted to go to law school, she was with her parents on vacation in New England and her parents were sort of taken aback at the idea of their daughter going to law school, but they sort of said, okay, if that's what you really want, honey. And she, they were at this bed and breakfast and they had um, shared a bathroom that was in between their two rooms. And she woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of her mother throwing up in the bathroom. And she went and checked on her mom and she was like, mama, are you okay? You know, was it something you ate? Yeah. Her mother said, no, I just, I'm just so upset. I can't believe my daughter is never going to get married. <laughs> oh my goodness. And it just is amazing to me. I mean, obviously she did get married. She married Bob Dole, but um, it was amazing to me that somebody like Elizabeth Dole, you know, who in, in her lifetime experienced, I mean, basically it was a choice. You either worked or you got married. And mm-hmm. the fact that um, how much it's changed into my lifetime and, and you look at millennials and they're the first generation born just assuming the quality of the sexes. And so um, it really is striking um, how different uh, things have, you know, how rapidly things have progressed, even though so much progress obviously remains to be seen. 
Um, yeah, what a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I can't believe that didn't make it into the book, but I know you had so many great ones in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. And I find a lot of times as we, you know, with She's Fierce, we're talking to women who are in their 20s, but also women who are sometimes in their 70s. And they share stories just like that, where you think, God, I can't believe I'm having a conversation with somebody. We've had similar experiences, maybe playing sports or, you know, going through high school and all of those similar experiences. And then you hear a story like that, that just gives perspective on how different the impact was on them at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and what I think one of the things that I really wanted the book to be hopeful about was that, you know, as a woman, you read so much that's like really down on women and like, you know, I'm never going to get there and everything is really depressing and we're not making any kind of progress. And I just, I feel like, um, I wanted to write a book that was a lot more hopeful and, um, and I don't want to downplay the challenges that women face. We absolutely still have a long ways to go, but I also wanted to sort of remark and take a step back and say, well, what, wait a minute, you know, we've actually made a lot of progress in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And by no, and like, and we're still in the process of making a lot of progress. And I think, you know, I end the book with this idea that we're not as far away as I think people think we, we are, you know, and in the sense that it was really the economy that brought women into the workforce was the economic necessity um, back in, in World War II during with Rosie the Riveters and, and women bringing in the crops and building the planes and the boats that helped us. Yeah. And, um, and at that point we had, we had almost full childcare, right? Like, I mean, every single company in America in order to help women work had like a, you know, a crash in, in childcare, um, you know, down at the bottom of the company. And so women could bring their kids into work and then leave, you know, and, and take them home with them when they left. And so, um, but it wasn't until like the 1970s that all of the, the laws banning married women from working without their husband's permission were fully repealed. Um, and it will be an economic necessity that brings us fully into the workforce. And we're really close to that. So if you look at, demographics by the year 2030 the baby boomer generation will have fully retired from the workforce um, and we will be short 26 million workers in america and there are only two ways to solve that shortfall one is you bring in a ton new immigration which is pretty unlikely with this president frankly yeah. um or two you bring women fully into the workforce and that solves the the whole by almost 23 million workers and so um there will be economic necessity that demands women in the workforce in the near future Yeah. Well, I have to say, I loved your book. I loved listening to you speak. And I want to encourage everyone that's listening to go out and get one. Um, It's Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And before we go to a break, I want to ask you just, um, you know, whether it's about women, whether it's something that you wrote about in Broad Influence in Time or anywhere else you've written, is there one story or a a theme of stories that maybe have changed the way you think about the world or approach the world? Um, gosh, that's, that's I know it's a big one. Um, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have one story that I think changed the way I looked at the world. I think that, um, you know, I certainly have favorite stories that I really loved doing and I loved how they came out. Um, but I mean, I guess the favorite story I think I ever wrote was, or set of favorite stories was, um, a a two stories I did out of Iran and I actually got arrested for them. Um, and, uh, I was in Iran in 2013, 2012. I think I was there in 2012. And, um, 
And I was not supposed to, I was supposed to be there for a conference, an online movement conference. And I wasn't really supposed to deviate from that path. And I, I ended up spending a lot of time meeting with artists and dissidents while I was there. And I, I wasn't followed for the first sort of six, seven days I was there. And then the last second to last day I was there, I got, I was followed by the secret police. And, um, and I, I was very interested in the idea that there, that all of the, there was a ton of art that was coming out of Iran, contemporary art that was incredibly anti-regime. Um, and the, and the regime seemed to really turn a blind eye to it. Uh, and, you know, they'd really cracked down on the cinema scene and they'd cracked down on the music scene, but they hadn't cracked down on um, art. And I was sort of curious why. And even in Iran, a lot of the art was, was very um, sort of uh, anti-regime, was very subversive. And, like, I went to one show called Made in America that was all about how America had won the culture war with Iran, um, considering every restaurant you went into had hamburgers and hot dogs and people wore jeans and sneakers. Yeah, wow. Um, and so um, the last day I was there, I was followed. There was a, um, I was meeting with an artist. We were both arrested. Um, I spent, I don't know, five hours um, being interrogated in Urshad, which is the, um, the, the cultural ministry, which is the ones who sort of give us our visas. And mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately my fixer, who is this amazing woman, she was really cool, was sort of, uh, basically said, look, they, if they were really serious, they'd take your notes. I think that we can sort of just get out of this if you just cry and ask, ask to go shopping. And I was like, are you serious? She was like, yeah, basically just cry and ask to go shopping. And I'm not very good at crying on command, but I, um, I put some Coca-Cola in my eyes and I dabbed my eyes with it. And that really makes you tear up. And yeah. Um, I, um, I came out of the bathroom, like just weeping because my eyes were so bothered and like, and I'm like, Oh, I just want to go shopping. And they're like, Oh my God, women in shopping. And so they let me go and I spent the next two days shopping. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, but like the irony is that, um, while I was shopping, I, I interviewed people and I talked to them about the economy and, you know, I spoke to women who were selling their jewelry because in order to buy meat, um, I spoke to people who like couldn't, you know, men who couldn't find razor blades to shave because there were shortages everywhere of different things. Women who couldn't find sanitary products because there was a shortage of those as well. Um, and so I ended up having do this. Uh, the two stories I did out of Iran were, you know, one was about um, this contemporary art movement, and it turns out the reason why they turned a blind eye to the art movement is because it brought in. Um, there, it was an exception in the the embargo that they could directly export fine art to both Europe and the, and the U.S. And so it was bringing in so much hard currency, hard cash, that they couldn't afford to stop it. Um, and then second, so I did one story on, on the contemporary art scene in Iran, and then I did a second story on the impact of the sanctions on daily sort of shoppers and, and, and daily life in, in Iran. Um, and then I got these irate phone calls from the Iranian um, press attache in New York, um, which is basically the only sort of Iranian representation in the U.S. They're, they're, they're at the United Nations Yeah. about, um, about how could I write about, you know, economic sanctions. And I was like, well, I told you guys I was going to go shopping and <laughs> I was I did, so. so now have you been back to Iran since then? Uh, no, my guess <laughs> is they would not give me a visa to go back. Not welcome. Gosh. Well, what an amazing story. That, thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, well, when we come back, I want to talk more with Jay about her new passion project, her new business. It's Memory Well. And Memory Well could very well change the last years of your life and mine, and maybe the life of someone that you love. 
I'm Kelly Youngs, and you're listening to the She is Fierce radio show presented by Bozard Ford Lincoln. Welcome back. I'm Kelly Youngs, and you're listening to the She is Fierce show presented by Bozard Ford Lincoln. We're talking with Jay Newton Small, the author of Broad Influence, a journalist, and now the co-founder of Memory Well. Memory Well is a company that is looking at healthcare very differently and bringing a fresh perspective to the care of Alzheimer's and dementia patients in particular. So Jay, we talked in our first segment about your very impressive journalism career and all of the accomplishments that you had in that area. So you were going forward, you have this career that's, you know, everything's running smoothly and going well, and you've decided just fairly recently to take a big leap and to start this new business. Can you share a little bit about what led to that decision? Um, yeah, so Kelly, I am... Um... My uh, I, my father had Alzheimer's, and um, I was his primary caregiver. My mother passed away six years ago, and um, and I eventually had to put him into a home. And they asked me to fill out this twenty page questionnaire when I did. And um, I was sitting there in this you know room, kind of trying to write out by hand the answers to all all these questions. And I'm thinking, first of all, no one is ever going to be able to read my handwriting because I have terrible handwriting. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you know, it was, the questions were really wrenching. I mean, they were sort of like define your loved one's marriage in like three lines. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm a professional writer and I can't do that for my parents. Um, Like, and, you know, uh, and I also was just thinking, who's going to read these things? Like who reads 20 pages of of handwritten data points for the 150 residents that were in that home? Mm -hmm. I I ended up handing in the questionnaire blank and I said, look, um, I, uh, I'm a journalist. Let me just write down a story for you. It's a lot easier. And, um, and they kind of gave me a weird look and I was like, they're like, sure, go ahead. So I, I wrote down a story for them. It was really simple. It was like one page, you know, here's who my dad is. And they really loved it. It, abs- it really transformed his care. So like two of his caregivers were actually Ethiopian and my dad, 20 years doing development work in Africa um, four of them in, in, in Ethiopia, and they had no idea that he'd lived in Addis Ababa, that, that he'd worked with Emperor Haile Selassie. Um, and they they were like, oh my God, that's amazing. And so they would sit for hours and show him photos of yeah. Lassie and, you know, Addis Ababa and Lalibela and Gondor. And he loved it because he didn't remember like the last 30 years of his life, but he remembered um, his early 20s in Addis. And it was like mm-hmm. being back there for him. And so it really transformed his care. And um, and, and, you know, there was a, a sort of behavioralist who worked there with my dad a lot and she really encouraged me. She was like, you should really write stories for everybody here. Like you should just start a, start a project or a business or whatever, writing the life stories of those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. And, and essentially that's how Memory Well was born. That was, um, a little over three years ago. And, and, uh, we now have a network of, uh, more than 300 journalists across the country um, working with us, and we're in almost two dozen homes now. Wow. Um, and we also have, you know, we, people's families can sign up online individually if they just want their stories told individually. And so um, it's really taken off, and we're really excited about it. Um, and so, yeah, after the election, um, I decided that instead of covering my third White House, um, you know, I don't know that I would have really regretted covering the White House missing covering the White House, but I definitely would have regretted not giving this a shot. So I took the leap and became an entrepreneur and started this company. And um, yeah, we're really excited. Oh, it sounds amazing. I mean, 
clearly there's a need for it. I know even in my own experience with um, not family members, but people that are very close to our family who have dealt with some of those things. And one of the things that, as you said, keeps them connected and keeps them having that feeling of personhood and being seen is the fact that we try to bring those stories and the, the connection that we have with them from whatever period they remember, or the fact that they like, love to sing, you know, in one example. And I absolutely, um, in a strange thing, so I've been in a lot of nursing homes in my time, and you, you do have that experience where you, you're looking at people and thinking no one is really seeing who they are now. And you're really bringing that to life. You're bringing their stories. You're, you're creating this opportunity for the people who are dealing with them to see them as they really are. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I found those homes just to be so isolating and nobody knew anything about anybody. Yeah. One of the things that I love about, um, about our stories is that, you know, they're, they're printable. So you can, um, they're each just one page, you can print them out and you can put them in care plans, but homes that we've worked with have also laminated them and put them up on walls. And I really love that because, you know, I know that when I visited my dad, he had this best friend named Warren and he and Warren would like hang out and, um, and I'd be like, Hey Warren, what's up? And cause I'd see him every time I saw my dad and Warren would be like, Hey, I'm good. How are you? And I'd be like, good. And that was it. And I would ask the nurses like, so what's the deal with Warren? Like, what's his story? And they never knew. And if I'd known more about Warren, I absolutely would have engaged him. And I'm sure that when Warren's family visited, you know, and if they'd known more about my dad, they would have engaged about with my dad. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of like hanging the stories up so that people can build community that like you can make connections and sort of read each other's stories and say, Oh, look, like your, you know, grandma went to the same like college that my, you know, son is going to or whatever it is. And, um, and you can begin to learn about each other and, and, and just knowing those details, knowing that this person had this whole life before really helps, you know, like, I mean, studies have shown it helps reduce their depression. It helps, even increased dexterity. It builds empathy between not only caregivers and, and, and the residents, but also family members. I mean, like one of the stories, um, one of the women we did a story for in Chicago, her two grandkids used to hate to visit her because she was really hard to get to, you know, react. And, um, and they, she didn't really know who they were and they didn't really know that much about her. But now that they have this story with her, um, they, they, you know, they sit with her for hours and they'll like talk about her life and I'll ask her questions and, and all of our stories online, um, come, you know, come with the, you know, we can upload, families can upload their favorite music and videos and arts and readings. And that way, whenever anybody's sitting with them, whether it's a paid caregiver or a grandchild or anyone, they have like a whole toolbox of things with which to engage them. And so I know that towards the end of my dad's life, he didn't really know who I was. And this, these are all the things that I use to help bring him back to me to help sort of keep him there for a while with me, like sitting, sitting down and looking at photos or like listening to his favorite music or watching his favorite shows. And it was sort of like my own personalized little notebook from that. Yeah. Um, that like, and that's what we're trying, you know, I felt like in caring for my dad, I had to kind of reinvent the wheel and in, in creating memory. Well, I'm sort of giving people all of the tools that I developed to myself to like, to sort of deal with my dad and help him with his diagnosis and help engage him and keep him as sort of mentally healthy as I could for as long as I could. Yeah. So, you know, you, you said you you took this leap. You are now an entrepreneur. You have this incredible mission. You're doing something that has a lot of meaning behind it. 
What has that been like to jump from, you know, working in a, a big company and, you know, being given a deadline and told what to do? And even though I'm sure you had a lot of autonomy, it's a completely different experience, right? From starting something from scratch and saying, I have to figure out a thousand different things here from the really meaningful mission behind it to how to do a budget. Yeah, that's been a huge learning curve for me. I mean, making my own schedule, I think as like magazine, I mean, magazine writers are always a bit like cats. We kind of, um, you know, are very independent and kind of work here, there and everywhere and don't really have schedules. Um, But in this case, we really, I mean, it's not just me having, not having a schedule. It's sort of like, you know, I'm now run, I guess I run a company, but like there's three of us that work there full time. And so it's not a huge company and there's, you know, there's another three people who are part time, but it certainly is a lot more responsibility and you feel like it's not just your own life, but other people's lives. And, and it is a huge learning curve. I mean, just doing learning to do the business side of it, a business plan, for example, a financial model, um, learning to do sales is a huge, and you know, and I, I suddenly have a huge respect for salespeople because I mean, I love this product. I think it, you know, I'm passionate about it. I totally like believe that it will change lives. I could not imagine doing this for like cars or something. <laughs> oh yeah. I completely relate to that. <laughs> like, I just, I'm like, wow, I don't know how people do this. It's, it's so challenging. Um, and, but it's really, I mean, it's definitely been amazing and, and it's just been such a huge learning curve and I, 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 I've learned so much and it's been awesome, but it's also, um, yeah, just the responsibility is something that I didn't expect, like to the, how seriously, it, how serious it is and definitely keeps me up at night thinking, okay, like I've got to, you know, be kind of responsible for other people and, and mm-hmm. for their livelihoods and, 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 uh, and to, to build this in, a, in the best way I possibly can. So how can people who are listening right now who are like, this sounds amazing. I'm already going to go out and buy your book, but now I want to figure out how to get connected with memory. Well, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Um, you know, get on your list or just follow you on social media. What are the best ways for them to do that? Um, well, if you go to our website, which is www.memory-well.com, um, you can buy a story on the website already. You can also, my, my contact information is there, my email and my phone number is on the website. So you can also reach me that way. Um, we also, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at JN Small or on Instagram or on Facebook. And I'm kind of all over the place as uh, having been a journalist. Um, and I still do a fair amount of television. So uh, so yeah, you can, it's actually really funny. My, like my Twitter feed is a bit Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because whenever I go on television talking about politics still, I get all of these, you know, Twitter is a really nasty place, especially. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I get all these crazy tweets where it's like F you, you effing C word. And like, yeah. Um, and then, and then I'll go talk about memory well somewhere and I'll get all these tweets of me being like, oh my God, I love what you're doing. It's like, you're saving the world. It's like puppies and kisses and rainbows and kittens and mm-hmm. like this total dichotomy. And my, like, it's like night and day on my Twitter feed of just like totally like love and hate. And <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm going to leave politics out of it because we all know how we all feel about that. But I think from from my perspective, because a lot of what we do at She is Fierce is about stories too. And we get the same response where people, I think what you're doing, you're creating the opportunity for people to connect on a different level. And, you know, we do that in a very practical way and connecting people, you know, in professional careers or, you know, moms who want to connect with one another or find somebody who is like-minded, but you're taking that to a completely different level and doing that for people who maybe don't even have the ability to do it for themselves. 
Yeah. And so well, the thing I really love about it is, is we're really trying to sort of turn journalism on its head. And I'm using all of my talents as a journalist, you know, that I used to use to write about the rich and the powerful and the infamous. And I'm applying it to everyday people. And where when I was writing for time, millions of people would read that story. In this case, maybe 20, 30 people might read this story, but the impact is so much greater on that person's life. And so um, I think of it as like microjournalism, but I also think of it as the front lines of history in many ways, in a very different and real way, where when we're doing, let's say somebody's ever doing research on Korean War veterans, for example, um, hopefully down the road, we can be like, well, here's a thousand firsthand Korean War vet stories, you know, and these are all stories that would otherwise be lost because this is is a generation that isn't living their lives digitally. They're not capturing every little moment on Facebook or Twitter. They're, you know, they're they're people whose stories aren't being told and every day we lose more of them. And so to me, I'm really passionate as as a journalist at the idea of, of, of saving these stories and creating you know, a, a huge tapestry, a record of that, of those generations. Yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. Um, I'm so excited that we've, you know, been able to talk about it. And in just a minute, we'll be back with Memory Well co-founder Jay Newton Small, and I'll be asking her to share her words of wisdom with us. I'm Kelly Youngs, and you're listening to the She is Fierce radio show presented by Bozard Ford Lincoln. Welcome back. I'm Kelly Youngs, and you're listening to the She is Fierce show presented by Bozard Ford Lincoln. So I am speaking with Jay Newton-Small, the co-founder of Memory Well, and I want to ask Jay um, a couple little bit deeper questions and ask you to share your wisdom with our listeners. I want to ask, first of all, you know, is there any advice that you've been given um, or a story maybe that you've come across through Memory Well or as a journalist that you've really taken to heart and lived out in your life? Um, I would say don't be afraid to fail. Um, and that advice that one. Um, was very much from my father, um, who, you know, my dad had this very kind of peripatetic and very kind of um, whimsical almost life where he, he, he always said he didn't really know what he ever wanted to be when he grew up and he never really grew, grew, never really grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ever only ever wanted to travel and he didn't go to college. He, um, his other brothers and sisters were so driven and and focused on success. They all went to college. They all became like lawyers and economists and really impressive things. And he just, you know, hopped on a boat at the age of 18 and went to London and started bartending in Earl's court. And, and, and he, I think his advice to me and he, you know, ended up, well, I mean, long story short, he ended up driving Winston Churchill around on off days and weekends who gave him to, um, to join the United Nations. And so that's how he ended up in the UN. But, um, he always talked about how, like, when we set up these expectations on ourselves and we set these goals, it's great to set goals, but don't don't look at the goal as, like, you know, something that is the end-all, be-all. You know, that oftentimes it's the journey, and, and if you fail to reach that goal, it's not a failure in life because you've learned a lot along the way. And I think I've thought a lot about his advice in recent weeks because, you know, recent months, I should say, as I started a company with, like, the, you know, startups are an ever looming specter of failure and success at the same time. I mean, Elon Musk said it was like steering into the horizon while chewing on gra- on glass. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're constantly inspired, but it's also a really incredibly painful thing to do. And so, um, 
I just, I think, you know, if I fail at this, um, I won't have regretted taking the risk. And I think that I hear my dad's voice in my head a lot in that note, because I've learned so much in, in this path and, and the journey is, is, is just as important as the destination. Yeah. You know, and I want to add to that if I can, I don't usually add to people's words of advice, <laughs> but you know, I, when I hear somebody say something like that, I always think, well, you'll, you're never going to fail because if you don't have one particular end in mind and you're on this journey and a, a particular path and you're willing to kind of go with the flow, which is what you're, you're saying you admired about your father. I think you're, you're destined to succeed, right? You're destined to find whatever that thing is that's most meaningful. So that's awesome. Um, now I want to ask you, which you may have, I may have led you into it, but who is the, um, woman or man that most inspires you? Uh, that's tough. I mean, I think, you know, I, I dedicated my book to my mother who, um, who really struggled, uh, in her workplace and she was phenomenally intelligent. I mean, she was you know top of her class at Oxford, top of her class at Cambridge. She was much smarter than I was. Um, and yet she, she faced a lot of sexism in her life. Uh, the United Nations is a group of, you know, almost 200 countries out of which maybe only two dozen, even on paper, believe in the equality of women. So working in an atmosphere where the vast majority of your colleagues don't believe in the equality of women is a very tough job, tough place to work. And so, um, I think, and so the book for her was, was really, I mean, my note to her did sort of almost from beyond the grave, like reassure her that, um, I'm not having as hard a time as she did and that things are better. Um, and she really inspired me to write that. And, you know, for my dad, memory well is for my dad. And so having lost both my parents, I think both of them inspired me in really different ways. And, and I hope that to honor their memories, um, in, in these very different ways, one starting a company, the other writing a book. But I think that, um, they just, I was an only child. I was, they had me very late in life. Um, they didn't think they could actually have kids. And so, um, I was kind of a surprise and, and, and I think that they, um, just let you, they were such huge presences in my life and like, and I miss them every day. And so I think both of them, I really, um, are, I'd have to say equally or inspire me. Yeah. What a testament to your parents. Well, my last question for you before we end our show is just what piece of advice do you have for the women um, in the She Is Fierce community, the people who are just tuning in or have found this podcast and um, have been listening and maybe inspired by what you've had to say, but is there any one you know, message that you really want them to hear? Oof. Um, that's tough. I mean, I guess the one piece of advice that I I really liked from my book that I think resounded at least with me because I'm a bit like this is um, Carol Browner, who is former head of the EPA and the environments are under Obama told me a story about um, a young woman who, um, you know, women are pleasers, right? Like we, we, if if something is wrong, we want to fix it. If like, there's something that needs to be done, we're just going to go ahead and do it. And how she was watching this young woman at the white house lead this meeting. And the woman was very impressive and everyone was listening to her and they were sort of taking her advice. And, um, and then something happened where something, you know, needed copies needed to be made of something. And she just leapt up and, and went and made the copies and came back. And, and she said that she, by doing so, this young woman had completely lost control of the room. Like nobody respected her anymore. The men just kind of like discounted her. She, you know, she, she no longer like they, they, people interrupted her. Um, 
someone else ended up taking over the meeting and like, and she, she, her advice was just, you know, don't always feel like you have to fill that void and, and get that task done. And if there are people there to do that task, you know, you like let, let somebody else do it, you know, and it, yeah. especially not your job and it's menial task or whatever it else, whatever it is, like, um, let someone else do it. And it might feel wrong. It might feel like, you know, Oh, I'm not, I'm not doing everything I can, but you know, it's, it's those subtle little things that like, um, really somehow make a difference and it's stupid like that it should make a difference, but it mm-hmm. does. Like, yeah. That's a very, that's a great one to end on. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard versions of that, but that's a great story that kind of illustrates it perfectly. Well, listen, Jay, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fascinating. I, I said it before, but I absolutely loved your book. Um, if you guys haven't read it, you need to go out now and get it. It's Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. And if you were touched by Jay's story and want to get more involved with Memory Well, you can check it out at memory-well.com. And the Memory Well Kickstarter is coming soon. So keep an eye on She is Fierce or follow Memory Well on social media and you will see um, some posts coming out soon all about that and how you can help support them. And you can find out more about becoming a member of She is Fierce at sheisfiercehq.com forward slash join. Join women in eight countries around the world who are up-leveling their lives right now.